Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we are going to talk about the biggest upset in college basketball history. Some even call it the biggest upset in college sports history, regardless of game. I've even heard it called the biggest upset of all time, period. Now, placing this game into its proper historical context is a bit challenging, but I will go so far as to say that it is indeed the biggest upset in college basketball history. So let me take you all the way back to December 23rd, 1982, to the city of Honolulu, Hawaii. I mean, just saying the name Honolulu and you can already picture the palm trees swaying in the wind and the deep blue ocean behind them. You can hear the crashing of the waves against the soft beige sand. There are sunbathers everywhere relaxing in the sun's rays. I've been to Honolulu, and I can tell you from experience that it is some of the most consistent weather anywhere on Earth. On the beaches of Waikiki, it is always between 80 and 85 degrees all year round. In Celsius, that's about 27 to 29 degrees every day of the year. And this is the backdrop for our game. The home team is Chaminade University, just walking distance from Waikiki Beach. They are a very small Catholic university with less than 1,000 students. The school was so small that they shared their facilities with a high school. And let me put that more accurately. The gym belonged to the high school, and they allowed Chaminade to use it. And Chaminade was having one of their better seasons, but they were still a very small school in terms of college basketball. And as a reminder to my international audience, here in the United States, we use the terms college and university interchangeably. Here, both words mean the same thing. The Chaminade Silver Swords were coached by Merv Lopes. He was only a part-time coach. The university had a very small athletic budget, and Lopes worked as a middle school guidance counselor, which means he offered guidance to 11, 12, and 13-year-olds on their academic futures. And then he coached Chaminade in the evenings as a part-time job. He was even responsible for washing the team's uniforms after practices and games. This was about as low as it gets in the hierarchy of American college basketball. For games, they would borrow their towels from a local hotel, and then they had to make sure that they returned every single one of those towels by the end of the night, or they would get billed for any missing towels. The visiting team that day was the University of Virginia, 
and they had a huge athletic budget with a full-time coach in Terry Holland, who was paid as much as most CEOs. He did not do the team's laundry. They had other people to take care of that for the team. And they had three future NBA players in their starting lineup, including the National Player of the Year from the year before. For those that don't know, here in the United States, university-level athletics is governed by the National Collegiate Athletic Association, or NCAA. They have three levels of competition. At the top, where the strongest schools play, it's called Division I. Then they have Division II and Division III, where smaller schools play sports. And then below that is a completely different organization called the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics, or NAIA. In terms of strength, the NAIA is below Division III of the NCAA. For the purposes of this story, we could call Chaminade a Division IV team. Unless there are some sort of special circumstances, you would never organize a game between a Division IV team and a Division I team. Especially if that Division I team is considered the top-ranked team in the entire country, which is exactly where Virginia was ranked. They were considered the best college basketball team in the United States. Now, two weeks prior to this game, Virginia had defeated Georgetown University that had five future NBA players on their team, including David Wingate and Hall of Famer Patrick Ewing. Now, the reason that Virginia was in Hawaii in the first place is that they were flying home from playing a couple of games in Japan. A Japanese manufacturing company sponsored some American university teams to come to Tokyo and play each other. In Japan, the Virginia team had defeated the University of Houston, which featured two future Hall of Famers in Clyde Drexler and Akeem Olajuwon. So if you're not quite getting the picture, Virginia is an absolute powerhouse of a team. The Virginia Cavaliers team featured future NBA players Othell Wilson, who would play for the Sacramento Kings and the Golden State Warriors. They also had Rick Carlisle, who would play alongside Larry Bird on the Boston Celtics and is now the head coach of the Dallas Mavericks. And they also had two-time National Player of the Year Ralph Sampson, who was the most dominant college player in the country at 7 foot 4 or 224 centimeters. Going into the game, Virginia was undefeated with an 8-0 record, and they held the number one ranking in the country. Meanwhile, Chaminade was ranked number four in the NAIA. But since that is the equivalent of Division IV, it was really like being ranked the 900th best team in the country. To put it another way, it would be like taking an average university team and having them play against the Chicago Bulls from the Michael Jordan era. Even Coach Lopes of Chaminade said afterward that he was just hoping to stay within 20 points of Virginia. In his mind, that would have been a victory. And to put one more log on the fire that is the context of this game, Virginia wasn't even supposed to be playing Chaminade. They were supposed to play the University of Hawaii, who also plays Division I. They wanted to play a game in Hawaii and then stay there for a couple of days while traveling home from Japan to help the players transition slowly to the massive time change between Tokyo and their home on the east coast of the United States. When the University of Hawaii canceled that game at the last minute, Terry Holland, the coach of Virginia, called up Coach Lopes 
and asked if they wanted to play in Hawaii's place. And Coach Lopes said yes. To the players from Virginia, this was supposed to be like a practice game against a far weaker opponent. They were supposed to spend a day on the beach, play an easy game against Chaminade, and then head home to Virginia. Everything about this was supposed to be easy and relaxed. And now it's time for the actual game. And I'm going to share that story right after this break. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back to the show, and now let's get on with this game. It was played at the Neil Blaisdell Center, and only 3,300 people showed up to watch the game, which was actually far more than normally showed up for a Chaminade game. But most of these people wanted to see Ralph Sampson for a much easier shot and a chance to win the game. But the Suns were out of timeouts. And I give full credit to Paul Westfall for what happened next. He called a timeout anyway. The referees acknowledged it. Now back then, if a team called for a timeout when they had none left, it would result in a single technical free throw for the other team. However, the team that called a timeout would still get a timeout and could then advance the ball to midcourt for the inbound. Westfall knew all of this and went for it. By purposely giving up the single technical free throw, one of two things would happen. If the Celtics missed the free throw, then the Suns would have one second to take a shot for the win. If the Celtics made the free throw, then the Suns would have one second to take a shot for the tie and go to a third overtime. Both options were far better than trying to go the full length of the court with just one second left. Jojo White of the Celtics took that free throw and made it with no problem. The score was now 112 to 110 in the Celtics' favor with one second left. The Suns were then given their timeout where coach John McLeod drew up a play for Garfield Hur to take that last shot. The fans that were cleared off the floor had not really gone up to their seats like they were supposed to. The fans were simply lined up along the baselines and sidelines all the way around the court. They were expecting the Suns to miss the shot and they were ready to storm the court for a second time. Curtis Perry took the ball from the referee and threw it into Garfield Hurd. Hurd caught the ball just above the right elbow. He turned and took a high arching fadeaway shot as Don Nelson was playing very tight defense. The ball seemed to hang in the air forever and then it dropped in. Tied! The score was 112 apiece and now they would go to a third overtime. The Celtics could not believe it. The fans could not believe it. They were ready to storm the court but Hurd's shot sucked the air right out of the building. There was frustration everywhere. Why can't the Celtics beat this team? They just will not go away. The third and final overtime was back and forth. The Celtics eventually took a 128 to 126 lead to hang on and win the game. They were able to just play keep away for the last 10 seconds as the Suns chased the ball around the court. With everyone exhausted, the Celtics had a 3-2 lead in the NBA Finals. Just two nights later in Phoenix, the Celtics won the game 87-80 and the franchise's 13th championship. Havlicek stayed unbeaten in the NBA Finals, eight trips and eight rings. But that shot by Gar Hurd will live on in the annals of the NBA. It is one of the most clutch shots in league history with an NBA Finals game on the line. As I said earlier, the bigger the game, the bigger the moment, the bigger the shot. Now this was easily the biggest moment of Hurd's career. He was never an all-star, 
His best scoring year was in 1974 when he averaged 15 points per game for the Buffalo Braves. In fact, he was traded from Buffalo to Phoenix during the middle of the 1976 season. He had only played 36 games for the Suns going into the playoffs that year. He was a third-round draft pick out of the University of Oklahoma in 1970, and his career average was a little more than 8 points per game over 11 seasons. Of course, being an NBA player is extremely special because so few players get to play in the NBA relative to the number of players who want to play in the NBA. So within the context of the NBA, Hurd's career was nothing special. He was a role player who found himself in a huge moment and he came through. That shot is his legacy. He would go on to be an assistant coach in the NBA for nearly 20 years with just a couple of short stints as a head coach of the Dallas Mavericks for half a season in 1993 and then a half season with the Washington Wizards in 2000. He is now comfortably retired. Well, that's the story for today. Join us next time when we share the story of the only NBA champion that went out of business and no longer exists, the 1951 Baltimore Bullets. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts, as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the football history dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.